1: The Team Never Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union helps you take control of your finances after the holidays. Learn more at NavyFederal.org.
0: All
2: right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. All right, so kick it off. We're all right we're, over we're, there now? Yeah, yeah. We're, getting, we're getting all of our... We got two new wizards sitting behind the hot desk tonight. We got Aaron Kendall joining us, and uh, my lovely sister-in-law, Melanie, is handling all the acoustics and the, all the digital sound systems, because uh, Andrew and, and John are out, out today, so it should be entertaining. we are on vacation. Va- we're, yeah, they're taking a va- Christmas vacation, but we won't do our stereotypical introduction because I don't have it in front of me to read, so we're just going to jump right into it, but today we are blessed. And honored. And honored Thanks. to have an American hero.
3: Well, I feel the same. For that, I the mean, greatest I just, generation. Oh yeah, yeah,
2: right. Because we know there's not that many of them. Standing Plus, up you right. have over a hundred years on this planet. Beg your pardon? You have over a hundred years of life on this planet. You're gonna, you're fixing to be 101, right? Yes, sir. So we have with us Major, retired Major Joe Bailow, Um U.S. Army Air Corps, and fought. For our country in World War II, and he is a extremely young, 100 years old right now. Fixing to turn 101 in March, and we've got a lot to we got a lot to we got a lot to get into. Yeah, so while thanks we got. for coming on. Because he's in the, and, he's in the studio with us, right? Like, yeah, so thanks for coming on and uh, talking to us for a bit. I can't wait to hear it. So let's let's kick it off, sir. What we normally like to do is kind of get a little background on on who you are and where you came from, then. Get into the the stories of of your generation while you were fighting fighting the war because I, I, we all know that your generation they 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 took they take that with them they don't get to share that much but since we've been in here sharing stories we appreciate that too I think that's a, a mutual respect military to military which you know yeah, sir. we hold you in the highest regards but let's let's kick this off Joe um, tell us a little bit about yourself and 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 where you were born and how you was raised.
3: I was born in Detroit, actually, uh, and, and Mother and Dad had me in, in uh, the western part of Detroit. But when I became one years old, my dad was a bad alcoholic, okay? And Mom decided she needs to send me out to the farm to my grandmother and grandfather. And I grew up with my grandmother and grandfather, and, and I lived with them till I came into service, of course. What I did... I, I was the only uh, farm boy. I grew up on a farm, of course, with them. But I was the only farm boy that went to high school in that area. In those days, you didn't have to go to high school. It wasn't compulsory. And what I did, I I kind of struggled through high school because I didn't have no le- leadership in how, because I couldn't even talk English when I started school. I had a fantastic lady Uh, Mrs. Emerson, my teacher, would help me learn English by talking to another girl that was Hungarian that was already talking English. And they'd translate back and forth, and that's how I learned.
2: So your mom and daddy spoke Hungarian?
3: Yes. Well, my mother and dad, my mother went to high school. She went to ninth ninth grade before she married. Where
2: were your parents born?
3: Uh, My dad, my dad was also born in Hungary. Uh, so
2: both yeah. mama and daddy yeah. are from Hungary? Oh, yeah. Or Hungarians? Yeah. My
3: mother was two years old when she came over, and dad was 12. And what I did, uh, I was fortunate that I, for some reason, I wanted to go to high school, and I had to walk seven miles. The farmhouse was seven miles from Flat Rock, Michigan, where high school was. But when I was walking, a gentleman named Joe Bader was working at a little Ford subplant in Flat Rock, Michigan, about a half a mile from the high school. And he drove by our house. He, he lived further out than we did. And he saw me walking. He stopped. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to high school. He said, you're walking? I said, yes, sir. And he picked me up. He said, you don't have to walk no more. He carried me through high school for four years, the gentleman did. And I owe him a lot. And then when I graduated from there, I went to work at the Ford plant right there. And oddly enough, what happened, uh, I, I don't know how to say this, but luck was been, has been with me all along in my life somehow.
2: You can say as much you can. That's a real thing. You can say as <laughs> much as you want. And the Lord's been on your side for
3: sure. Yeah, anyhow, I, uh, I decided I, I couldn't go to college, so I went to work for Ford Motor Company, and I knew the... Uh, Girl, I graduated with a girl that was a, uh, the, not the president, but the superintendent of the small subplant. Well, one day when I'm working on a punch press, I went to get a job, and he hired me right away because he knew about me. And then what I did, I, I worked at a, a punch press, putting out dome lights, okay? And I'm punching these things out, you know, forming them. And all of a sudden, a man gets behind me. And I, I didn't realize he got there. I, I, he, where he came from, I don't know. But I happened to glance over, and when I glance over, it's old man Ford. Hey, Daddy, really? Yes, sir. And he just st- stood there. And boy, I thought to myself, Joe, don't make a dog out there. Don't so.
2: mess <laughs>
3: <laughs> So I'm punching away, and pretty soon he taps me on his shoulder. and he says, "Shut your machine down." I thought, what did I do wrong? He asked me, do you like your job? I said, yes, sir. He says, "Uh, did you graduate from high school? I said, yes, sir. He said, are you going to go to college? I said, Mr. Ford, I can't go to college. I don't have no money. He says, well, we'll see about that. So he says to me, he says, "Uh, how would you like to go into River Rouge, into Detroit, into the motor building and work on motors? I said, I love it. He said, okay, we'll take care of that. But he says, under one condition, I'm going to pay you for eight hours and you're going to work six and you're going to University of Michigan. He took the bill. Really? Yes, sir. Get out of That's a great story. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford paid for you to go to Michigan? Yes, sir. And then he pulled me out of there and took me to Greenfield Village to take apart the tri-motor, 13 of us, actually 14 because it wasn't the 14th one that came on board. 14 of us took that tri-motor apart and put it back together so we'd know how to build an airplane. Then he sent us out to Willow Run. The Willow Run plant was just partially built. They were only building the center wing for the B-24. And he trained us how to put an airplane together. And we built the first center wing, Uh, On his production line, or the starting of his production line. And what we did, we just got, as we grew, we got on top of each other, you know, all crowded because we're trying to do jobs on the doggone center wing. And so what we did, uh, I went into Knight as a superintendent, and I told Mr. Knight, I said, Mr. Knight, we're having problems. I said, we're on top of each other, we're not going to get production that Ford wants. By this time, the fuselage was being built further, and they take the center wing on a B-24 and pick it up, put it right on top of the fuselage, is what they do. Well, Mr. Dyer said, well, what would you do, Joe? Well, I says, well, I don't really know, but I, I suggest what we try to do is take the engine mounts and the landing gear mounts and build them in a separate area, away from all these people working on the wing and putting all the pop and all the rivets. He said, well, that's a pretty good idea, and he said, I'll talk to engineering, and sure enough, engineering said that, that'd be a good idea, and they set the plan up, they may be formed. <laughs> I was 20, 20 years old. Well, as time involved itself, we got the B-24, the first B-24 that we put together, okay, because we did most of it by hand, it wasn't pre-punched by punch presses, and... The pilots took it off, got it about four feet in the air and put it back down (laughs) and never flew it again. (laughs) I mean, we had so many patches on it, it wasn't even funny. But anyhow, as I worked there, I got more and more interested in aircraft, of course, naturally, because I built airplanes when I was 12 years old, little models. So the war broke out. And then I made my decision that I want to go fly. So I went to Mr. Knight, as plant superintendent. I said, "Mr. Knight, I'm going to go ahead and join the Air Force, Air Corps, and I want to fly." Well, by that time, by the time I got home that night, here's this letter from the draft board. Thirty days, you're going to the infantry. I uh, "No, I I don't want to go to the infantry. I, I wasn't good like you guys. I didn't want to be out there in the dirt." <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. I uh, went ahead and went into the federal building and went into the Air Corps and took an examination, uh, a long test, you know, for qualification. Yeah. I qualified, and I told them my problem that I was being drafted. He said, "Don't worry about it; we'll take care of it." So that's where my career started. And so when they were
2: when they were pulling y'all in when they, when the draft was going on, if you decided you want to go and fly, they would just let you do that, right? Yeah. You just had to sit down and take a battery test, written and, and physical?
3: Yes, sir. So I, I, when I when I finally got in, I went, they took me down to Dayton, Ohio, where the air corps was at that time, big base. And I was there for, we were marching more than anything else. And then they sent me out to Ogden, Utah, and I waited out there. Actually, U, Ogden, Utah, I had to wait for six months because the Air Corps, uh, the cadets were jammed. You know, we had a lot of cadets in training, and we were full because that was the starting of the war. We didn't lose a bunch of men. So anyhow, I stayed out there at Alden, Utah, and got on a B-17 because I was able to—because we were building—I was building—helping build a B-24. They made me a crew chief on the B-17, I rode that with Lieutenant Eels, and I told him my problem. That, you know, I've gotta wait, now I wanna be a. I c I wanna be a cadet. Well, good luck again. He told me just exactly how to do it, how to get in. Because he said you're gonna to have to take another test. He's I'm gonna tell you the books to get and he started training me on what some of the questions that they asked. So when I took my second test, the fine when they finally called me in because they had an opening, they tested me again I went with flying colors and I was lucky. I had the knowledge from Lieutenant Neos. And then I started into uh, Santa Ana, California and we We didn't do aerodynamics, we did uh, aeronautics. Anyhow, we learned all about the aircraft, you know, what makes it fly, how it lifts, and all that stuff. Aerodynamics, that's what I'm trying to say. Anyhow, we took that and Took uh, celestial navigation and all that stuff, and then finally into our first phase of flying in Tulare, California, which was a uh, BT uh, was a PT-13A little acrobatic ship, the two-winger. Man, that was jo- a joy to fly, <laughs> and I had a I had a Mexican guy instructing me, and he he took me up. We even did outside loops in that thing. I mean, in, in, you, know, you do an inside loop, but we did outside loops, which wasn't supposed to happen. But
2: we. Uh, so the first time you ever went flying was when, when, it, when you got in the plane, and you took off by yourself. What, how, what was that like?
3: All right, let me. Go. That's a different kind of flying back then. Okay, hold on. I'll give. You, I'll get it straight in my mind just a minute. That would be forty-three. It would have been about February of forty-three, is what it would have been. I can't believe. That, you can that's believe what that. was my first flight. Yeah. <laughs> How was that like? Then I went to uh, the second flight phase, which is Volte vibrator, which we didn't like. And then the final phase, I flew single-engine AT-6s, their North American AT-6, which was a training plane for uh, fighter pilots. And then from there they sent me to another school, why I don't know, but they sent me to Douglas. And I'd start flying instruments. They'd start training me in instrument flying. They'd put a canopy on you and you couldn't see out and you had to find your way. He'd take you out nowhere and then you'd have to find your way to the base and get on the final approach before he'd uncover you. But uh, finally I got everything done. Then they put me in Long Beach and I was in the ferry command for a while. I still didn't go overseas. And I flew everything there. And I, I got checked out in B twenty five, I got checked out in a whole pot full of aircraft. Anyhow, I, I, the B seventeen was a comical checkout, okay? What happened when the man went on Long Beach there in Signal Hill, the instructor comes out, he says, Okay, we're going up in a B seventeen, teach you how to fly B seventeen. I said, Okay. So we go out there and he said, he gets in the pilot's seat and I get in the co pilot seat. And he said, now, you watch all the instruments up on top that I turn on, all the switches, how to start this thing, and et cetera, and warm up the engines, and he went through the whole series. And then we started taxiing out. We took off, went out over the ocean quite a ways, and we came back on the way back in. He says, now, you watch everything here, and you, there's a lever for the flaps and stuff and the landing gear, and that's, you're going to have to handle that. And I want you to get acquainted with this ship. So sure enough, we come in to land. He taxis out to the ramp, cuts the engines off, takes out his bookwork, starts writing, and I thought, What's going on here, you know? I mean, did I fail this thing? I didn't do nothing. And I, I finally I couldn't stand it long. I says, uh, now do I get to do I get to go up next? He's said, no, you're checked out. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it, huh? God.
2: Yeah. That might be a little so I don't know if I can make that one happen.
3: <laughs> yeah, and then, then from there, they sent me up to uh, Merced, California to instruct uh, cadets. I, I instructed two classes of cadets in a single engine for fighter pilots. And I thought, well, I'll go overseas for fighter pilot. Well, I get in that big buggy right there. That you have the picture of. Mm-hmm. That's what I flew. I arrived in uh, India of uh, 44 of uh, Ju- June or July, I'm not sure which now. Just yeah, graduated in June. In July. I arrived over there in forty four July and then started flying and I flew co pilot for a couple of couple of rounds and the man that was instructing me had flown 66 missions. And I want to clarify the mission business for you, okay? Okay. You know, a lot of people say, you flew 106 missions? Well, they were different. They were not like Europe, okay? I mean, they were uh, like a kind of airline flying, okay? And, and as we didn't have that much interference up north, At the time we had the interference in shoot downs, like I said, when we dumped for American marauders because we'd be close to the Japanese. Just
2: give just to give our listeners a little background. Can you tell them why you had to go, Why you went over to to India and over into Nepal and all that kind of stuff over in the Himalayas? Can you tell our listeners why we were forward deployed in that area?
3: Why we were over there? Yes, sir. The reason that we set up, we had three bases. We had uh, uh, Sukhotein which was ours, thirteen thirty-seven CFBU, and we had Jorhat and we had Chabaw. The three bases were set up there for the purpose of hauling stuff over the Himalayas into China to the 20th Bomber Group. We had third squadron support to the 20th Bomber Group of 25s and 24s. The 24s were long-range and the 25s short-range. The reason we had to fly over the hump— we had no other way to get them in, to get stuff into them. We couldn't go through Russia, uh, the dictator wouldn't let us in. We couldn't come across the Arctic, our aircraft couldn't go across the Arctic that far. And we couldn't come in from Nice because that's where the Japanese were. Right. So it was the only way into China to bring in bombs and stuff. Now we had B-29s over there too, and we'd carry 500-pound bombs, we'd carry artillery, we'd carry everything. I mean it didn't make the difference what it was, you know, anything they needed over in the twentieth mm-hmm. bomber group. Uh the F- General Stilwell was trying to build a leader road at that time to help help out because we were hauling we were hauling, every second day we were we would haul, every second day I would fly across. Towards the end it was every third day. And because we were flying back and forth when i arrived in suratin india we had 116 pilots we'd fly night and day and we uh, what happened to the 116 pilots by the time we got by the time we finished the war and i don't i'm jumping way ahead of me here i'm not inserting some of the stuff that i did want to tell you some no, of the no, we'll st- go back to that <laughs> okay We'll go back to it. Anyhow, by the time we, war ended, okay, we all sat there and waited because we were out and way out in nowhere, you know. So we were the last ones and they were the last ones to be, be, for us to be picked up. So we're waiting out there. By that time, we were down to 39 pilots. Mm. Uh, from the 116, they were out in Flanders Field, you know, got... Hit by weather mostly, and some of the zeros did get them. I'd say maybe fifteen percent went down to zeros. The rest were all weather. Weather, we call it the aluminum trail.
2: Now, so you, so you got, so you, so you were four deployed, and you. Oh
3: yes. Okay. Now there's 39 of us left, and we waited till November. The war was over in August of '45. We waited until November and finally got an American Airline pilot came in, a commercial pilot, came in, the four-engine DC-4. And he came in, and he said, I can only load 36 people. Mm-hmm. Well, Colonel Cassidy from Georgia, who was our base commander, he, we became friendly. I was, I was the senior pilot on the base. I was, I was 24 years old. 24 years old senior pilot in the middle of a base
2: out in the middle of nowhere during World War II. Yeah. I wouldn't trust most 24-year-olds with a potato gun.
0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus.
3: Yep. Anyhow, uh, he, Colonel Cassie says to me, he says, uh, Joe, get John Bullock, who was, uh, flew 104 missions, and uh, get B.T. Clark, who also flew 104 missions. He says, bring him in here. I want to talk to you. He said, I'm going to put these t- uh, 36 men on board this airliner. They're going home. And I want you all to stay back. I you. I'll take my airplane and I'll fly to Agra, India tomorrow. We said okay, no problem, because we were kind of we 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 became his favorites somehow. Luck again, okay. Anyhow, he this guy takes off, goes to Agra, India, where he had to refuel. Well, the next day. I got this we got the story, of course, how all this took place. The guy lands at Agra India, they refuel him, and he goes, he has to go in and sign an out of uh, a slip out at operations that he's leaving and fueled up. And the operations officer told him, Mister, don't whatever you do, don't go straight to Karachi, which is a usual route they went, or Some of them went, when we went for engines and stuff. He says, the vicious storms are developing there. We want to go up to New Delhi and cut across from there to Karachi. He says, it's a little out of the way, but he says, you'll be safe. The pilots comment, and I can still remember it, what the operations officer told, told, told us. He says he told the operations officer, I know how to fly my airplane, I'll take care of it. Hour and a half later, they were all on the mountainside. The entire crew, the guys that finished the guy war, were killed by some idiot that didn't know how to fly mountains. But anyhow, this I carry the rest of my life. It's just, it's every time I think of it, it's real hard on me. Oh, sorry, sir. Excuse me. I'm sorry. No, no, you're perfectly fine. Some funny things happened to me over there that might interest you all, okay? Yes, sir. I was married. I married a little Texas girl from Amarillo, Texas. Good for you. There you go. Anyhow, she she had a real close girlfriend called Myra, and Myra had a cousin, a man, that was had orders to go overseas. So Myron asked my wife to go with her. So my wife went, and she met this man. And she talked to him for a minute, and she said, do you know where you're going? He said, no, we don't know where we're going. She said, well, I'm going to give you a note. It's another hard story for me to tell you. She said, I'm going to give you a note and she says, if you see my husband, give it to him. She gave her the name and all. What we did, what the pilots did when you came off a flight, and I came in at 10 o'clock that night off of, off. Of, I would call them flights instead of uh, <laughs> missions. I mean, it, we felt like we were just flying flights sometimes. When I came in, I went to the line mess, and he served me. This man served me. And the officers had to pay for their meals. So we signed a ticket, and then they gather it up at the end of the month. They just take it out of our pay. Well, when I signed my name, this man looks down at it. Well, I guess he looked at all of it. I don't know. But he looks down at it. He looks at me looks down, and I thought, what the heck is this guy doing? Anyhow, he says to me, he says, Lieutenant, I was a lieutenant. And he says, Lieutenant, he says, do you have a wife in Amarillo named Wanda? Her name was Wanda. I said, yes. He said, I have a note for you. (laughs) I mean, for her to do that, half confidence that she'd get that note to me. Was a he miracle,
2: and he didn't know where he was going.
3: Yeah, I mean, by God, there's 16 million of us all over creation. Right? Yeah, it's it it out is. everywhere. It's crazy. It That's realized. a great story too. Yeah. Then the other love
2: conquers st- all, right?
3: Yeah, that that was a top story for me. The other good, the other good thing that happened. It it wasn't good at that time to me, but it, as I look back upon it, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> Colonel Cassidy called me in one day, and he said, "Joe, I've got a little mission, to, little mission to do for for you to do." And I said, "What is it, Colonel?" He says, "I want you to go down south of Peishan, China, to a small P-40 that where the Flying Tigers were flying out of." And he says, "You'll have to take my airplane, which is a C-47. It was a DC-3." He said, i will land on a short runway. You can't land the C-46 on that short runway. And he says, pick up 26 mirror monitors. We're taking them home. We're bringing them home. He didn't tell me what I was picking them up for. Anyhow, Joe followed my co-pilot, and then my uh, radio operator and I hopped in the airplane, and we took off in his airplane. And we found the strip. It, and they give us the bearing from Peashan which way to go, and we found a strip and we landed on a strip, but there's no airplanes on it. of course there, the p40s had pulled out by that time. Uh, a matter of fact the p40s turned into the air Corps. they They were no more rogue fi- fighters like they used to be. So I land the aircraft, turn around, and here comes the Mar- 26 Mar- marauders running. Out of the area, up into the into the aircraft, one of them ran up the front and said, "Lieutenant, Lieutenant, take off immediately." By that time, I was a first lieutenant, so I, I, said, I thought okay," so I gave it the power and we start running down the runway. And I got it off the ground, and when we got about three hundred feet, all H broke out. I mean, they were surrounded. The whole airport was surrounded, and. It, Back behind was a Horseshoe Mountain, and the whole airport was surrounded by Japanese. And This was in a colonel's airplane, fortunately it was in a colonel's airplane because they had a neoprene tank for him where if ever a bullet went through the tank, the gas would not leak out, it, it sealed just that quick. And we got hit. We got hit real bad, I mean bullets all over the place, but we finally got out of there got back to the super thing, and the guys were all happy to get, you know, to get the heck out of there. I mean, they, was, uh, they were pleased. Anyhow, colonel comes out. He greets them, and I finally crawl out of the aircraft and come out. He tells me, he says, the first thing he says to me, Joe, what the hell did you do to my airplane? <laughs> <That was laughs> I mean, <awesome. laughs> right by the cockpit there, we were tore completely out. I mean, where somebody hit us with some stronger armed fire. But I I I was pleased to do it after I did it. And he Colonel Cassidy wanted to get me a special medal, okay? By this time I had my flying cross and I had several air medals. And he wrote President Truman. Well, President Truman wrote him back, he says, We can't give him anything. He says he wasn't wounded. We can't make him a medal of honor. He says All we can do is just congratulate him, but when he wrote the letter, when the president wrote the letter, he said, tell Captain uh, Joseph A. Bailo that we can't give him the Medal of Honor or anything, but so-and-so. Anyhow, I have the letter. It's on my wall in my bedroom from President Truman. So uh, Colonel Cassidy read it to me, and I said, Colonel, doesn't you know I'm a first lieutenant? He says, what do you mean you're first lieutenant? I said, well, he, he put captain down there. If he said you're captain, you're captain. That's oh, right. Yes. That's right. Okay.
2: Yeah, President, I have it right here. I'll, I'll read it out loud. To you who answered the call of your country and served in its armed forces to bring about the total defeat of the enemy, I extend the heartfelt thanks of a grateful nation. As one of the nation's finest, you undertook the most severe task one can be called upon to perform. Because you demonstrated the fortitude and resourcefulness and calm judgment necessary to carry out that task, we now look to you for leadership and example in further exalting our military in peace. Signed, Harry Truman, the White House. And it does say Captain right there. What's up, Cap? Free Captain America.
3: Anyhow, the next uh, the next day we finally got out to and Got it. We flew all across Africa and into Casablanca. How was that? Pardon?
2: I was flying into Casablanca.
3: Well, it, it was an easy flight, really. The only thing they warned us is that not to get close to where you were, where you boys were. All right. Yeah. yeah, they told us that if we went down there, they'd cut our doggone throat. So we uh, just to, I'm just curious real fast. Flying through the Himalayas,
2: Everest. How many times have you? Oh yeah. How many times you pass Everest?
3: How many times what? Mount Everest. Mount Everest. Yes, sir. Uh, Mount Everest was uh, we when we flew when we started out from Sukhotein, we would fly south. Okay, Mount Everest was uh, let me get myself straight north, east, northeast of us, about thirty miles from our base. It was almost across from Chadwell, uh between Chabrol and Jorhat. Uh, we were 30 miles from uh, Jorahot, and then Chabo was another 25 or 30 miles. Oh, and I—being—what uh, happened to Colonel Cassie and myself, we were in the officer's club, which was a little straw hut, okay? Right, yeah. Still had one now. Still the officer's club, yeah. though. What's up? <laughs> Anyhow, we'd get, we'd get uh, so many beers a, a month, you know? So we'd go in there and sip some beer— And we talk to each other, and we talk, ask each other, you know, where you're from, what have you. And he overheard us. Said I was from a farm in Michigan, and he was from a farm in uh, Georgia. He's a Georgia tobacco rascal. He chewed tobacco constantly. So anyhow, the he got acquainted with me and started talking with me real, you know, about farm and different things and growing up. And I kind of become real friendly with him. And then Halbert, his adjutant, became friendly with me. So Halbert used to haul paperwork from Fluker thing to Jorhat to Chaball, you know, between the colonels or the base commanders. And he said to me one day, he says, Joe, would you like to fly that little L-5? We had an L-5 that wasn't a search ship, but it was an L-5. I said, yeah, I'd like to fly it. He said, okay. I we're going to give you the paperwork, and you take it over to Chad Ball. And so I got to fly the L-5, the little, like an oversized Piper Cub. But it was, it was fun. And then after that, I always flew the doggone thing in between flights whenever he had something to take over.
2: How many hours did you have in the air when you came out of there?
3: When I came home, I had, I had a little over a 1,000 hours.
2: You were telling us earlier that you had, you, you've been shot down twice?
3: Twice, yes, sir.
2: Can you tell our listeners about the the one you were telling us about the first time when they they knocked you guys down and that guy was coming in and hit hey, Y'all had to take take you out one at
3: a time. You want me to tell that again? Yeah, would you please? Okay, what happened? Uh, we were fortunate to bail out in the, uh, a farm clearing area because there were some farmers around in through there, and we were right when we were all all of us on the airplane drop, we were close to the woods to the big trees. I mean. It was, the southern part of Burma was jungle. And what he did, he came back. By the time we got to the trees, and behind the trees, he come back. And then he tried to strafe us. He started hitting the trees around and shattering things, trying to hit us. And mm-hmm. that's when I shot at him with the forty-five. Like I said, I, I, honestly, goodness, I'm not lying to you. I, I, I couldn't hit a side of a barn with forty-five.
2: So, But it was Japanese fighters that came in and shot you guys down? Yes, sir.
3: Yeah. Yeah zero.
2: Yeah zero. How many of they? Do they? Was there a bunch of them? Or they fly? They fly in pairs. They fly by themselves. Or are they fly in uh, a squadron. They. Yeah, explain how that happened. Like they, all right. they coming through the clouds above you.
3: Very very seldom that ever. They flew in groups over there for some reason. They fly alone. They come up alone. They come up from the south all the time, but they always just came to the borderline of China, where the marauders were. Where we'd make the drop, and they'd come after us. Then, what happened? asking Marcus asked me a question. To answer you. We were concentrating on dropping. Okay, we we were looking for that drop where we we're gonna put this thing. Where we we're gonna drop all this stuff. And then suddenly a flare came up, and we were concentrating on that area, and didn't pay no attention. Well, we couldn't see backwards anyhow. If you look at the aircraft, we had no way of seeing backwards. Mm-hmm. And he came up from behind us. He must have come around somewhere. And we didn't see him from the side because we our total concentration was gonna be this drop. We were down we were down to about maybe eleven thousand feet roughly, however, we weren't that high off the ground, because the plateau where we were gonna drop this stuff was about five thousand feet higher above sea level. Anyhow, he got us just about the time that I started dropping. I was already dropping down. We probably dropped another two thousand feet from where we came in. And he got on our tail and got us. He
2: blow did he shoot the he was, how did they take the engines out? Take the how did that work? Just... He took
3: the engine out on the left side, yeah. He hit the engine on the left side and caught on fire. And when it caught on fire, we had what we call a halo system, and we'd pull a a rod, a, a cable, and what we would do is we release the halo, the halo out, it was a powder form, onto the engine to put it out. But if you cut a gas line, which he must have cut on that one, we couldn't get the fire out.
2: Okay.
3: We had, the rule in briefing was always this, you got 28 seconds to get out of that airplane if you can't get the flames out. However, that wasn't always true. Because sometimes it would take three minutes before that darn plane would explode but you you know we were rushing we were, we were trying to get out but it would'
2: explode though it just wouldn't it wouldn't burn out
3: yeah but we we all of us agreed that we heard the plane explode it exploded somewhere in the air I mean the fire finally got the, oh, the
2: fire runs down the gas line into the tank and yeah Okay, let me, let me
3: yeah, see. see we had no neoprene protection on those tanks. The, all, the Our gasoline—and we had heavy loads of gasoline, tremendously heavy loads. See, we, we would not pick up any gasoline in China. We, they used it for the B-24s and 25s and the fighter aircraft over there and the B-29s. So we never could get gas there. We'd load up to the hilt with gasoline in the wings. And we fly into China and come back on the same fuel.
0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus.
2: So after I'm sorry. So uh, after he after he shut you guys down and y'all and y'all jumped out,
3: y'all landed in a in, a, like in this a, clearing. Yes, in a clearing. Yeah, fortunately, fortunately. Yeah, right? because I,
2: that, that's 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 lucky. Again, another that's another great lucky story because that never happened. I've never landed in a clearing and we jump over it, when we were jumping into a clearing. <laughs> I still couldn't land in a clearing.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. I I had so cockeyed much luck really in, in going through the war. I mean I was. I was really lucky. Well, anyhow, the, I think another funny thing that happened to me is and Sheridan. I'm
2: curious, what does, it look, what does it look like when you're bailing out of that aircraft? How many guys are bailing out? Oh, yeah, yeah, because you, do you? are not just like jumping out of the, I mean, how does that Right, happen? right, right, yeah, Fine. great well, question. I, I want to see that picture. First. Right, right, great question. Because y'all had to jump out the side of the side of the aircraft, right, not out the back.
3: Yeah, we had to go to the back, the back door on the side. Okay. Right, Yeah.
2: right behind yeah. the wing.
3: No, but behind the wing, yeah. Behind the wing. Right. But you guys don't go to jump training, do you?
2: So it was kind of like, was that like the first time you'd ever jumped out of an airplane?
3: We had jump training in, in uh, California. I'm trying to think of the name of the little town. We we jumped off of 30 feet is what we did uh, on a rope. But it, the rope was went through a pulley. And it didn't come down all that fast, but it came down fast enough for us to hit good and hard, taught us how to you know, crumble our legs and yeah. how to roll.
2: PLF. PLF.
3: Yeah. But that's the only training we had, but boy when you see, you gotta remember this too. And I guess I don't know if you all had the same parachute, but we had what we call fast falling parachutes you know, fast fall so the doggone fighter wouldn't come down. And pepper right. and all you of my parachutes fell, parachute fell fast. All
2: of my parachutes <laughs> fell fast because I was big and, and cumbersome. But uh, so that was you had to jump out of a, a burning uh, airplane is about to explode. Completely different of going out of an airplane when you want to jump. Yeah. So how did I, what was that like? I mean, explain that intensity. You kick that door. Here's the thing. As I was always fired up about jump out of an airplane too until that door came open. And then you hear that, that rush. Was the fire coming into the door, or was the fire on the other side?
3: No, no, it was on the door side, oh, yeah. and it was going past. But see, so you didn't jump into the fire? No, the engine fire was out further. The engine was out further on, on the wing. You know, from the fuselage. Okay. See, I don't
2: have any death perception, so I wouldn't have known that. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like it's right there in the door.
3: Yeah. Well, you could see the flames. I mean, they were coming back, but the uh, to truthfully. You could not get me to jump out of an airplane, okay? But I had no problem. Different story when that sucker's... Now you're scared. uh, Which is worse, jumping out and staying Staying in the middle. Get Get your
2: ass out. So did that zero (laughs) that shot y'all down come back and try to get you while y'all were under canopy? Or did he follow the plane?
3: Well, we were down low enough that we fell down fast. Okay. And by the time he made his round... We were already down on the ground. We were running for the trees. And He just he, he yeah. strafed you. What's while the you, round? Round? you said you were at
2: eleven thousand feet.
3: Pardon? What,
2: how, what was your now altitude when you jumped? The, the deck,
3: deck was at five. When when we hit? When you jumped? How, how jumped? was your altitude? I'd say our altitude because see, we were we were heading down. We were about let's see, five. We were down around eleven. So we were about six thousand feet high when all that happened. I'd say well, by the time we jumped out of that aircraft, we had to be down about four thousand feet that's a nice little hop and pop
2: yeah that's that's pretty good
3: but we count
2: oh yeah we do I, yeah we uh-huh eyes closed too if you have your eyes <laughs> over, we, all my all my jumps i tell people were at night jumps because i always had my eyes closed even in the daytime I, I, was, <laughs> I was i was
3: man he Boy. loved
2: it kendall man they're, they're all kind of they're jump guys air guides I, not, not that's what mm.
3: now did your straps uh leave you blue in between here and the crotch and on your shoulder. No. Nah. You're
2: being nice with that blue statement. That's a different... You
3: talking about like that
2: T10 Harley or Charlie harness that you had to strap into? T10 Bravos, right? Is or Bravos? Did you have the Bravos? I got jerked through those risers one time. So, uh, well, I mean, you guys... was uh, Joe, did y'all... Was y'all as a static line or did y'all have to pull? You had to pull, right? Oh, it was free fall.
3: Yeah, free fall. Ooh. Ooh that's different. <laughs>
2: that's different. Yeah. Okay. Because we all flying with the chutes on, or did y'all have to put them on in the plane?
3: Uh, we had, we sat on the chutes. We also had a backpack. We had a machete, and we had more ammunition for the forty-five. And we had chocolate bars and stuff inside of it. And uh, uh, what do you call it? Food that they were serving in MRE? the MRE. Oh, oh, K ration. K rations. Oh yeah. But we uh, four fingers of death. Yeah. Ham slice. The. I will tell you this much about the second.
2: No, 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 no. Hold on. No, don't, you don't have to get into it. I, we know that it bothers you. But so tell, let, let's, let's finish the first one. So he can't, y'all hit the ground, and the, and the zero came back to, to strafe you. Yes, sir. And then you said you were shooting at him with your 45 and throwing some pretty harsh language at him. Oh, some, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of it,
3: I'll tell you. But you well, said you are able to, Hey, back it up. You, you were thinking, what was you
2: thinking when you came out of, the, out of that plane? And that chute deployed, I want to know what you're thinking when you're hanging in the air. And you're, and there goes your bird. Because it had to be freezing cold, all, too. All
3: I, all I kept remembering was count, 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 you know, and pull. That's true. <laughs> I did that too a lot. That's all I had on my mind, just pull it because I wanted to open. And you know what's funny? Did you in see? That, it was in, it dark? In that one, two, three count, it was a slow count. In that one, one, two, three slow count, when I pulled my ripcord and I... I looked up and saw when I got that jerk, you know, up into the crotch and across the shoulder. I looked up and there was a chute flared out. And then when I looked down, I saw the ground coming up. Uh, Yeah. Man, we were down.
2: Oh, so you didn't even have a ride. (laughs) It was out and down. You didn't even really have time to cinch your
1: straps up. I
2: mean, we had
3: a lot of men break their legs and stuff. Right, yeah. Yeah.
1: Is he even worried about, the, like, the other guys in the plane? Is there a
2: procedure of getting out, or is it just every man for yourself to get out of that so airplane? It, so what was the procedure of exiting the aircraft? Because you were probably the last one out,
3: right? Yeah, I was the last one. But what we did, the pushers went out first. We call them pushers. Uh, oh,
2: they're the ones that put the cargo out, right? Yeah. Okay. We,
3: we They went first, and then the radio operator went next, and then Joe followed up the to Copot and myself. All right. I had a great hope out. He slept all the time. Hey, <laughs> oh, well, that's great. Here's a, here's all right, so
2: when you, when you guys hit the ground, then what? Because that's a different world altogether. Then now you're in the jungle.
3: Well, now then we stayed right there, and the, it 4:15 in the afternoon. Oh, so it was daytime, and, and it's yeah daytime, and it's winter time. So you was know, it sunny
2: or, or woo, what was the weather was doing? Was it raining?
3: It's clear. Right. But the but the problem was that we knew they couldn't find us that night, so. We huddle, We all huddled up inside uh, in, a, in our parachute and tried to sleep. We didn't sleep, of course, but the next morning at 8.15, because they fo- you know, they found us, uh, the area, we heard this little airplane buzzing around and coming closer and closer. And what we did, we ran out, one of the guys ran out and put the parachute out in the clearing, and he kept going around and finally found us. Then he dropped us a walkie-talkie. Yeah. And he's a submachine gun, a, a Thompson. And
2: Nice. Really? There you go. That, I, so, that, but he came in, and you were saying that the, the plane that, that came in that, that could land in that little strip could only take one at a time.
3: Yeah. He could land in 250 feet. It, it, it had extended wings. That's like from here to my truck. Yeah, it was. A, it only flew about 80 miles an hour.
2: But he came in, he'd pick one up and leave. You said it was about right. 30 minutes one way or just 30 minutes out and back?
3: It, it took about 38 minutes for the round trip I remember exactly to that. where he dropped, dropped us off.
2: What, did he radio for people to come, more help to come pick y'all up, or is he the only one who can get in there and do that?
3: No, what they did, they took us into Mission. hall had a strip, uh, a landing strip, and they contacted one of the guys coming back from China. And he put his airplane down, no, picked us right. no, up and took it. us back to the school.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but he he kept, so he picked everybody up and then you were you said you were the last one on the ground. Yeah. After he took yeah. off got caught, I bet it got I real was, lonely.
3: Oh, you talk about a hot pilot cooling off. <laughs> I did cool off. Uh, sure. I mean I got scared. I thought the doggone guys would be running around there somewhere and find me, but uh, of course, it wouldn't have made a difference if it was just me or the, all five of us. It would have got us. But
2: uh, it's a little different when you're by yourself.
3: Yeah, that was that was a little different. That's a different kind of pucker factor. The whole Ain't anybody to
2: joke with. The whole ad, the whole <laughs> attitude change. It's a, the minute the last ones there and they take off. You by yourself, you're like, well, this is, is a great idea. When you, when you can't hear that plane anymore and you really know you're alone.
3: Yeah, bad. but really, uh, we we had compared to. Germany, we had it easy. Do you do you all realize? And that came out on the, on the computer about, uh, I guess maybe two years ago when I saw it, when I came up on my computer when I was searching for things. Did you realize that in, in Germany, or not in Germany but in Europe, that seventy-two percent of the pilots and crews were killed? Wow, that's seventy-two percent. Honest to God, I mean that was horrific. Now we didn't, we weren't that bad, but we were bad at sucreting because of that bad accident. I mean, that was that was bad. Now John Bullock from Henrietta, Texas, is already dead and gone now, and so is B.T. Clark out of Chicago. The three of us that were left. So I'm kind of the last man standing. How, last man,
2: <laughs> last man standing. Damn right. <laughs> Uh, how old were they when they passed? Because y'all lived forever.
3: John, <laughs> no, uh, Clark died around four years ago and John Bullock uh, died I guess maybe probably around 10-12 years ago now. Yeah, He had a big ranch out there. That the, his fat parents did. The Bullock
2: Ranch? Out, out, yeah. Where out in Texas? Pardon? We're, he's a Texas boy too, right? Oh yeah. Yes, yeah. Sir.
3: yeah, I met my wife on a blind date in Dallas.
2: Me too. Not Uh, in Dallas, though. Yeah, that was the best, right? All right, keep going. So,
3: huh? Let's hear about that. Yeah, the your wife. Yeah, let's hear about that (laughs) blind date. (laughs) Well, we were taking instrument additional instrument training off of Love Field, so they sent me down. Is this the start of a joke? Yeah, they sent us from California (laughs) to Love Field, and anyhow, we stayed in the uh, uh, what the YMCA. The, that's where we stayed. The pilots did that were taking the a, additional instrument training, and the guy ne, sleeping next to me, he had a cousin, and she was taking lessons on how to plug, you know, lines into the telephone service, just like my wife was. Switchboard operator? Yes, long distance operator. Anyhow, he says, i, I uh a Roommate of your wife, of your of a young lady, I didn't know her then, of course, of a young lady, and uh, I'm going to take Gloria out to dinner tonight, and uh, Gloria wants to bring the young lady with us, if she if he could get somebody, some man to go with him, so he says, how about you, Joe? What did you say? Come on, I signed a blind date. I said, no way. I <laughs> I could just picture me. Getting a... (laughs) That's wingman material. Hey, hey, you need a wingman. Come on. I don't know what I... I don't know what there's... No, I'm good. (laughs) But I finally caved in, okay? And we went out to... And I can still remember the house, the Dickies' house out in Highland Park. And we went into the living room. They invited us into the living room. The girls hadn't come out yet. I can remember them coming out the double door from the dining area somewhere. And Glorietta came out first, and I thought, "Well, oh, she's not too good looking. I hope the one that comes she's out next is good. better looking." <laughs> <laughs> well, boy, she opened the door. My wife, my wife, my she came out that door, and man, I had it took me five minutes to put my eyeballs back in.
2: All right, that's it. Watch out, my brother, steal your wallet. He's a politician. <laughs> Yes, sir, nice work. Very nice work, sir, she's gorgeous.
3: Little Texan. What was her name again? Wanda. Wanda. Yeah, she's Wanda Park, actually, before she married me.
2: How long did, how long did you court her before?
3: Well, we went out together quite a bit there. Uh, fortunately, I saved some money, and I kind of treated her to some places she hadn't been because she came from a poor family, and she enjoyed having the luxury. It wasn't that I had a bunch of money, but I spent all my money on her. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then we wrote to each other for a year and a half. And finally, when I was out in Tulare, California, flying the PT-13A, the first phase of flying training, I asked her to marry me, and then when I got in the second phase, she came out and married me.
2: How long were y'all married?
3: At 68 years. She, she died. She'll be dead uh, July July 12th should be gone 10 years.
2: Yes, sir. I'm sorry, sorry for your loss. That's a wonderful marriage. That's a good marriage. Number.
3: I never thought I'd live this long, honestly. I, you know, I, I, I'm grateful. I'll tell you a lot of things about myself as far as health is concerned. Come on with it. Tell yeah. I've never had a headache.
2: Wait, wait. All right. Well, then how, how are we going to take any of your other advice?
3: <laughs> I, I never had not. a stomachache, never broke an arm, never broke a leg, nothing. I just...
2: We shook hands when he came in, right? Like time. I say,
3: I, I attributed it all. Everybody that asked me, I attributed it to two things. Yes. What?
2: Well, yeah, tell them that's, this.
3: That's eat bologna, bologna sandwiches just for lunch <laughs> every day. And then if the doctor tells you to do something, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a good life. I've had a real good life. I have wonderful children, three of them. I have two daughters and a son. My son lives out in Naples. My daughter, of course, lives here. Is yes, Has Uh The older one, and I live with my younger one. After my wife died, uh, she, she her husband was an attorney, and they had a big home up in, well, I'm pointing that way, it's not here. I'm thinking I'm in North Carolina. They had a big home up in the mountains. At, at Boone, Boone, North Carolina, uh, my daughter decided, my wife went into Alzheimer's, and I was taking care of her by myself down in Wellington, Florida. And my younger daughter says, Dad, I've got plenty of room up here. we got three, they had 4,000 so square feet. And so they took the bottom part and made it into a two-bedroom apartment and two baths, and." uh dining room living room kitchen and all she said go ahead and sell your house and I'm going to put you up here and we're going to help take care of mama so that's where she died and so I moved in with her and then after she died I just stayed with my daughter and finally I gave everything away we had we had a lot of fine things in life I ha- I had a good life I had a I wasn't any millionaire but I was successful in life I worked with banks uh, put... Designing them back, putting them together, and I just—I uh, just—I broke my story up. Now I can't even think. So when you when you got, back, I have a quick question. When you got back, transitioning
2: from the war back into civilian life, I got a ton of questions to ask you. Not even about the war. I'm talking about being a parent. What was your favorite decade of living? What would you go back and do? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> Tell me, you know, I, I well, don't feel like I'm going to yeah. live. Here's what I mean, You want to talk about a coach, man. I got some questions if you, got, if you want to get into them. When I came, I mean, you got a phone number? I'll text you every day. I'm, like, hey, I'm in this yeah, spot. When I came
3: back, I, I asked to land in San Antonio, Texas. And the commander on the field came to me, and he says, I understand you flew the hump. And I said, yes, sir. He says, you got a lot of instrument time, haven't you? And I said, yes, sir, about four. I said, about 400 hours of instrument time. And he says, could you stay another year? I was going to, you know, get out of service. I was going to divorce myself from service in San Antonio. He says to me, he says, could you stay another year? I says, well, yes, I could, but I don't particularly want to. He says, well, what we'd like for you to do is fly a C-47 hospital ship carry the cripples to their various locations. But well, when he said that, I felt sorry for him. And
2: oh, yeah, I got I says, you. I said, okay,
3: I'll stay another year.
2: That's a good officer. Get well, you then like that.
3: That was, that was a good thing to do, but it turned out bad from the standpoint that by the time I got out, everybody had jobs and they were all gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go to work for a doggone shoe store. I worked for them for about six months before I finally found a company that, Came out of Detroit in Amarillo, Texas. Had a brain shot. So you thing.
2: you sold, sold woman's shoes,
3: woman's shoes like Al yeah. Bundy,
2: kind of like in a department store. Yeah, that's awesome.
3: Yeah, that's what I had to do. I had to make a living. Hey, yeah, that's, hey, what I'm talking yeah, about. that's right. Oh yeah, and uh, our children came along, of course, and what have you. And I finally found uh, this company and. I made an application with them and went to work for them. I worked for them for not, for Burroughs. It used to be Burroughs Corporation, which is now Unisys. And I uh, I went ahead and worked for them for 19 years. And then I, I, A company out of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, which had a big company there that would help put banks together and stuff, that's what hired me. I spent 25 years doing that. 19 with
2: one company and, is that 29? Pardon? 19 years with that one company and then another one came in and got you?
3: Yeah, 25. Yeah, well, they made an offer. I couldn't refuse. So, wait, (laughs) you
2: you built banks?
3: Uh, I didn't construct banks. I designed. I designed layouts and also furnished, told them what to buy. You know, like you got to buy a vault door, you got to buy safety boxes, drive ups, you got to have chairs, everything. And I got a little cut from everything. I mean, (laughs) yeah.
2: I bet you did. I was busy. <laughs> <laughs> team got a team got a good man. You designed the banks, huh? That's what I like to hear. All right, so okay. So, yeah, besides bologna sandwiches, okay, check. Wife money, all Get together bologna what, sandwiches. When like growing up, when you uh, is, uh, Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm hold
0: on on the wife thing. What was coming home to her like from the war? What was your welcome home?
3: My welcome home?
0: Yeah. Now
2: what was it like coming home to your wife after being gone to the war?
3: I, I when we landed in Casablanca, we were there for a week, of course, you know, trying to get it all flight like a out. Novel. We flew over to New Finland, and then we flew into New York, and then we went into a compound where they checked us for dysentery and other stuff, you know. And I, I could call my wife, and that's the first time I called her. And I called her and she was staying with her mother and dad. And when I called her, she feigned it.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so anyhow, what I did, she said, "I'm going to come out to New York." I said, "Don't come, hun," because I said we're going to be three days in the infirmary. They're going to be checking us out for diseases because we had dysentery and all kinds of junk over there. And so I said, "You just wait." I said, "Go to the Adolphus Hotel in Dallas," because that's where we. I took her to a fine place with. Pheasant under glass <laughs> to impress her. Anyhow, I thought just get a room and stay stay there. And uh, I went ahead and I thought I'd catch a train and I'll go out to the train. She says, "Well, I'll meet you at the train." I says, "It's impossible." I said trains were all being sidetracked. You know they were running all over the country. I said, "You just wait there and I'll, I'll get a taxi and I'll meet you there." And that. <laughs> Oh, that was a great day. <laughs> <laughs> How long had it been since you'd seen her? Uh, I arrived over there in, what did I say? July? June. J- June. June, yeah. It was right at the end of June when I arrived over there. I didn't get home till November of the following year. General right. Tunner would not let us come home, period. He was the, the big commander all, all over the whole area. He wouldn't let us—we didn't have no pilots, no replacement pilots. You see the—you know how the government does. They make some good errors. Uh, what happened, we found out that we had an overflow of pilots, okay? When we first got into the war, pretty good. Yeah. We had an overflow of pilots, so they decided to cut down on cadets. So they cut down on cadets, and then by that time, we really got into strong action, and we start losing. Hmm we start losing one after the other, in, at our place and in Europe, too, and we couldn't come home. Of course, Europe would fly 35 missions on short missions, what we call into Germany, and the long-range missions into Romania and stuff, they'd go 45—pardon me, the other way around. 45 into the short missions and 35 into the long missions, and then they'd come home. Because it was, boy, the Germans just pounded the heck out of them.
2: So did you have anybody flying with you from World War One?
3: Did I ever one?
2: Like any of the boys from World War I still around? I mean, fighting with you guys when you guys went, when y'all went in?
3: You know, I can't remember. I, I don't remember of, of anybody from World War I when I, uh, I heard about it when I was, you know, going to school. Yeah. But uh, Marcus, I, I can't, I can't remember.
2: Because there's some all of those guys the, all that...
3: The, all I'm thankful to God, but, you know, I, he gives me the memories that I have. I I can, yeah, I remar- can remember things real well.
2: I was just marveling at that because I had trouble remembering what I did this morning. Some of them guys can spit out the names, places, and towns that they were in and what time, and I I, I, I was always fascinated how they could do that, too. Even so many different places at, at so many times. It's hard to oh, keep I forgot them. to
3: tell you about my experience... Uh, See, I, I skipped some stuff, and I'm going back now. Oh yeah, come on. Colonel Cassidy calls me into his office. Joe and Sheridan's coming in on a C-47. Going to entertain the troops. Go meet her, will you? He said, "I don't want to meet her," <laughs> because he was chewing tobacco all the time, just running out of his mouth. So I said, "Okay, Colonel, I'll meet her." So I go to the, I go to the landing strip. And here comes her airplane in. Who is it again? Anne Sheridan. Ann
0: okay. Looked
3: like my wife. From South, from North Carolina. Okay, yeah. She's yeah. a movie star. A great movie star. Anyhow, I I stand outside at the airplane at the ramp, and here she comes down the ramp, and I thought, Well, what do I do now, you know? And she just walks right by me, didn't even know I was there. Well, anyhow, what happened, eyes and ears, I don't know if you all know about this, what eyes and ears of the world was at that time. It was a movie group, uh, you know, a filming group. Okay. Well, they were filming her, okay? They, they came over with the airplane, riding on the same airplane. They were filming her as she'd come off the ramp, and I was standing beside the ramp, So my picture got into the eyes and ears of the world. Now, this eyes and ears of the world was sent back to the United States. And when you went to a movie, before you saw the movie, you always saw the news, and the news was the eyes and ears of the world. So my wife and my sister, not my sister in law, her sister in law, one night decided they'd go to the show in Amarillo. So they go to the movie house. And all of a sudden, my wife screams. Well, everybody ran, you know, from the even from the office. What happened? What? What's wrong? She said I just saw my husband, on <laughs> eyes and ears of the world, greeting Ann Sheridan. <laughs> so then Colonel Cassidy got into the act with eyes and ears of the world, and he made them sure that they know that I had uh, rescued the Marauders, and I have a, I have a news clipping from Emerald Amarillo, Amarillo's paper. It's in our scrapbook. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if you. I don't think there's a copy of that in there. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Yeah. Some crazy things happened to me.
2: Keep going. So 100 years, and you, as soon as you were kind of, you turned into a man. So in our early 20s, we get sent to war. Then you go to war, you come back, then you, you set up, you have a great life. Through all of that, there's got to be some the, the valuable lessons. I mean, the short wisdom, the straight to the point. That's what I want to hear. If you give us any advice. On everything that you've been through—from right, war I, I, to marriage to kids to grandkids—I mean, I met one of your grandkids, yeah. so I, <laughs> I'd have—I'd
3: have to—I'd uh, have to probably try to give you the, the same information I my—I gave my uh, grandson.
2: i oh, give uh, me something better than you gave him.
3: Pardon?
2: <laughs> I don't want what you gave him. I'll give you something better.
3: <laughs> well, the information I gave him, of course, was when you get a job, stay on the thing till you find another job, then leave it. Don't leave a job till you find a job. And so that's what I've been teaching my grandchildren. Was not to be without j- job. Don't be without a paycheck. And, and, and I, also, I was also taught by my grandmother and grandfather because they had integ- tremendous integrity in the farming community because they, they were real honest. I also uh, learned... No, I was going to tell you, I was going to learn to slip my mind. So I get these short memories once they're knocked out.
2: No, you just have a lot of memories and a long time in them. Yeah, so 100, that's, 101 that's years. Com- you that's got That's completely different.
3: Probably got a lot hey, going on in there. When we,
2: move, when we lose those, that's, that's a thing. There's so much in, 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 in that mind of yours that that's... that's what, the was worst it? What, what was I've it seen, like? I've seen
3: so much. Uh, I'll tell you about my first car. Let's hear yeah, about it. I bought a, uh, I bought a Ford coupe, with a rumble seat for thirty-five dollars. What? So
2: the old man gave you? Did he give you a deal on your first car? Yeah. Hey, talk about a little bit more like Henry go, Ford. Let's go back to the the you working at the Ford plant. Oh. Your first car was a Ford. Yeah. Did old man Ford hook you up with it? Because you couldn't much drive. You couldn't drive anything else into the Ford
3: plant, right? No, that's all we could drive. Yeah. yeah that's right. If you were working for Ford, you you better drive a Ford. Company man, company car. Yeah. Roger that. You better drive a Ford. Yeah. Yeah, I bought a convertible and uh, I finally I was kind of a backward boy, you know, coming off the farm. I didn't date. I didn't date till I, I guess I was 2 years out of uh, high school. And I finally dated a girl in town. I thought she was pretty good looking, but I found out later that she had enough paint on her to paint the town red. <laughs> so. But anyhow, my life was crazy with women. I mean, it. I just didn't, I, I just wasn't smart enough to.
2: What was it like in, in the 1930s and 40s as a young man? Because you were born in 21, yeah? No, 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, 21. What was it like growing up in the 40s and the 30s? I mean, that's through the Depression, well, in the, in that's the, through the, the wars.
3: In the, thir- in the 30s, of course, we, I was on a farm totally at that time. We were still, I was still on a farm, and we found out that a lot of people in town, like in Detroit, you know, and I, we, we hear about it in, the new, read it in the newspaper. We were standing in line for a cup of coffee, just a cup of coffee, and we felt sorry for them, and, and we couldn't sell all the products that we grew. Because we had a pretty good sized farm, and what we couldn't sell on the market at that time, because it's hard to sell it on the market, they weren't weren't buying there either. So what we do, we distribute what we sell, what we could on the market in Detroit, and then we, uh, coming home, we'd stop off at different places where we knew families and different things, and we'd let them pick whatever they wanted out of the truck and just take it.
2: So, so back then, okay, so you paid35 dollars for a car. How you know, much was, yeah let' let's break this one down.
3: And I was making 75 cents an hour. 75 cents an hour. Yes, sir.
2: <clears throat> what would you say the greatest piece of technology that we have in 2021 is, I mean growing up and seeing it because that was before we well, were so before. like okay, so like now we have like the cell phone, right? What was the coolest thing you remember coming around? One like an invention that was like wow. TV. TV. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one.
3: Yeah, when I, when I first saw TV, that that was something else. I just couldn't I couldn't imagine how that developed. Did you guys have uh, running water and electricity when you were a boy? No, sir. Not not at first. Uh, it, it, I was uh, I was about a year from leaving the farm, you know, going to war, uh, before we got water in. And then we also had inside privy. We had, we had an outhouse. Right. And, uh, you know, on Halloween night, we had a man named Mr. Hainer that had a farm next to us, had big apple orchard and grape orchard, and his grape orchard was adjacent to our farm. So Otto Kovacs across the street, another farm boy, and I would sneak over there into his grape field and get a bunch of grapes and eat them. So <laughs> we were out there one time, and he'd come out there with shotgun. He caught us. who scared the heck out of us. Well, we, we didn't pick no grapes after that, but when <laughs> Halloween came, what we did, three of us boys, uh, po- a Polish boy and Otto and myself, we went over at nighttime, Halloween night, and we moved his outhouse four feet back from the pit. <laughs> I don't know whether he fell in it or not. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I've fallen uh, in one of those before. I know how gnarly that is. Here. Oh, you talk about the trench, you know. We flew into, at Christmas Eve, we flew into Kunming. We landed, everything was fine. And all of a sudden, here comes uh, yellow ball, yellow ball alert. And then come green ball alert. We knew they were getting closer. Bettys, we call them Bettys. They were twin-engine uh, bombers. That's all Japan had was twin-engine bombers, and they were coming. So, all of a sudden, red ball. When it was red ball, it's time to go to the trench. And you talk about the trench. I got in that daggum trench for the first time. You know, about not even as deep as this, about that wide. And here come these doggone Bettys dropping a whole bunch of anti-personnel bombs, small ones like pineapples. They had shrapnel around them. And when they hit, the shrapnel would fly all over creation. But when I'd look up, you know, I looked up and I thought to myself, these guys are coming, these bombers are coming. I'm looking up at the doggone sky. What am I protecting here? It scared me to death. I mean, I thought I'd drop a bomb in that place and we're done. But fortunately, uh, the shrapnel didn't carry that far either. But the bad part was that about 10% of their their, uh, bombs didn't go off. So they closed the airport down. You couldn't walk out. You had to stay right where you were. They warned us on loudspeakers until the guys would clean up, you know, clean up the ones that didn't explode. Man, it was a mess.
2: A lot of those places are still riddled with all that unexploded ordnance and stuff that went in low water, even underwater.
0: Um, do you just want to wrap up and tell us like your greatest piece of advice, like just in life, whether it has to do with your wife and love or just how to get through bad days?
2: Being around in the world for a hundred years, it's changed a lot all over. If you, if we could, if we could pay, pass one piece of advice to the younger generation, like if my brother and I had to stand in front of a lot a younger crowd and be like, hey. We got taught this by the guys who came before us.
3: Well, my theory in life, uh, the only advice I can give you that I try I, I to practice is, you know, if somebody's nasty to you, the heck with it. I walked off. I never got in a fistfight, never in my life. I just didn't feel like I needed to because I always felt, I even taught my, grand, my grandsons. You you get in a fight and you get beat up. Everything's fine, that guy's not gonna hurt you anymore. But you beat the heck out of him. He may kill you next time. So I told him it wasn't worth it. And I said, just walk away from it. And I says and I respect everybody for what they are, you know. I respect you for what you people did out there. I wouldn't go to Afghanistan. I, I'd hate to go there, okay? But what you guys did there I respect you for it. I realized, too, that you couldn't win the war. You can't win that war there. I mean, it's, it's oh, crazy. We weren't
2: there to win a war. We just went there to whip their ass. Yeah, it's
3: a crazy place. A little but different. You, you guys did a good job. You did a fantastic and I appreciate it. And I appreciate every man in Vietnam that was out in Vietnam, just like my son-in-law was. And I, uh, I appreciate him. Uh, not that I liked the war in Vietnam. I thought it was a political war, and I'm not trying to be... I, I don't get into politics. So you say, I don't like you're 100
2: years old, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. You can literally say whatever you want. No one's going to demean. That's your right.
3: Anyhow, uh, I just... I don't like to see guys fighting and getting killed over not what's kind of not worth it. To me, I felt like Afghanistan wasn't worth it. That's my own personal opinion. If your opinion's different, fine, that's your opinion. And I, I agree with you. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I agree with you that you were over there and took care of the best you could and the wonderful things you did, but I just, uh, that's the way I feel. And I, I also, all my life, I always try to be friendly with everybody. You know, anybody, it didn't make no difference to me if it was a garbage collector or who it was. And I also told a garbage collector one time when he was picking up garbage in front of our house in, in uh, Wake Forest in Raleigh, I uh, told him how much I appreciate him. I said, I like the way you handle the garbage. I said, you, you if you drop anything, you pick it up. And I said, you're a professional. I said, you're, you're, and I told him, you're as great a professional as anybody is in his field. You know, so he's a garbage collector. But if he does a good job, he's a professional. And that's the way I feel about people. And that's what makes me get along with a lot of people. I I get along real good with people. I had a birthday party. A bunch of them. Yeah, but I had one. Uh, I don't know if, this this probably doesn't relate itself to this total. But anyhow, what happened on a Saturday morning at Lake Roy, we live on Lake Royal, at Lake Royal outside of Raleigh, and we live in a community where there's about three thousand four hundred houses, and there are a lot of nice people in it. You know, a lot of older people, who retired. So, my daughter, I could tell something was going on the week before. I mean, all the hubbub, you know, and all this stuff. So, two of our friends down the street came with the little pit, with the truck and picked me up says, Joe, we're to take you out to Grif's I says, why? He said, we want you to see it. It's a beautiful place, and you can buy uh, cornbread and stuff like that there. I said, okay, let's go. So on the way out, the telephone keeps ringing, you know, his phone, and he's got it on speaker knockdown, you know, don't let nobody hear. And I thought, don't thing. he talks for a minute, Next time phone rings again. I thought, boy, he's on the phone. What the devil's he doing? So we get to Grist Mill, and it was beautiful. It was big rocks and stuff, and uh, the water was going into the big wheel that was turning the mill and grinding. And they, uh, I, I looked at everything. We walked through everything, went inside. I thought, well, now we'll go home. Well, they were walking around, I said, are we ready to go home? No, we'll stay for a while, let's stay for a while. Well, he walks off, George, my friend, walked off, and he's on the phone again. Well, anyhow, about 15 minutes later, he comes, he said, we're ready to go home, so we head home. Well, the way our home is laid on our on our plot, it's on a slope and kind of a little hill out in the, where the front road goes by, we're on a corner. Anyhow, it slopes up and down, and we always come in here on this flat road. Okay. Well, this time we come in on we come all the way around out of the way to come up this hilltop, this slight rise. But I couldn't see across the rise. You can't see across the rise till you get up on top of it. Anyhow, I thought to myself, why is he going around that way? Well, we come across the rise. My God, there's cars all around. We have three-quarters of an acre, and they were all full of cars all around the edge. And I look out there, and they're all lined up with flags, waving flags. I'm the only uh, World War II vet out there. So anyhow, then they start singing Happy Birthday. The... In Goldsburg, Goldsburg uh, North Carolina, which is the biggest uh, Air Force base now on the East Coast, a big bunch of pilots were there. The Carolina Carolina's North, uh, St- the State College, the choir was there, and they sang me Happy Birthday separate, and they sang me the Air Corps song, you know, off we go. We had 40 tables set up out in our yard, and our porch, which is about, maybe wider than that area there, was full of food. And we had friends from all over. I mean, we had about 250 people. It was the biggest party I ever saw. And then what (laughs) they did, they took these pictures, and they took them to, I don't know where they took them, but they took pictures of me that I have in a scrapbook, my daughter took it out, of mom and I, I call her mom. We all call each other dad and mom. My wife, my wife. they had a picture of my wife and I when we got married out in front of the, on the porch of the house we were renting at that time when I was in cadet training. And they made life-size on, on plaques. And they had a plaque made of me when I first entered cadets with the backpack on the parachute and then another one when I got my commission in my wings uh, that one there yeah they're all life-size they're right in front of the house and I went over and looked at them I dropped a few tears when I saw my wife of course but anyhow I had the doggonest party you ever saw in my life <laughs> god I never had anything like that in my life
2: so you deserved it can't wait for to see what this one's going to turn out to be like.
3: Now they, now they cut a brick. They cut a brick. The, we have a flagstone, a big flag, out front where we enter into our area. And that, down at the foot of it, they have nice rocks and stuff and, and concrete. And then one of the ladies that was a lieutenant in the Army, she had a brick cut for me, just a regular brick. And cut in there, Joseph A. Ballo, uh, Major Joseph A. Bailo and World War II uh, combat pilot, and they planted that under the flag out there at the entrance.
2: Have you been to D.C. to see the uh, World War II? Have you done
3: honor flight? No, I haven't. Not, not yet. Not yet. No, I'm I'm planning. I'm kind of planning if I, I if I keep holding out. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was fun. I'm going to go ahead and write the president and see if I can get a ride out there. If not, my my one grandson said, whenever you're ready, Papa, you, I'll take you. Because it's only about, I'd say, around 300 miles from our house.
2: No, from Carolina? Whoa, 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 we'll we'll help you get there. We can get you out there. Uh Uh-huh. You just say when you want to go. Yeah, for sure. I think we know somebody should, who knows
3: should, somebody. Yeah, you need to go see that. Yeah, the the World War II more. Yes, sir. Yeah. The yeah. whole thing. The yeah, whole I'd city like, is awesome. I'd like to see it all. I'd like to see the vets. you know. All but, this, yeah, it's this, all great. Y'all's, um, but, y'all's but, man, because
2: they have, well, there's EWOs up. The, there's just so many. World War II, man. You want to talk about some getting after it. Well, that's all. Hey. Joe, thanks for spending the afternoon with us. Yes, sir. Sharing sharing some of your story with us. I appreciate you. Your life experiences. I Ho- appreciate. Hope Joe. you have. Gonna have to have you back here at a 101, 102, 103. Uh, yeah, every year check in. I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, this is what I needed. This is. What...
3: Well, I'll come back. I come to see uh, Jimmy's boy play baseball. <laughs> well,
2: don't come see Jimmy. Don't see you seen Jimmy all the time. You come see us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll come out there and fetch you up. For sure. Yeah, I'll always let him know when, when you're in town so we can we, we come over.
3: Thank, well, thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate y'all. Oh, thank you, buddy. Yeah. No. I'll bet you were, because I was scared that one night, you know. Uh, that one, not that one night, that one morning when I was there by myself only for 45 minutes or so. Uh, I'll bet you had a heck of a time being out alone like that. Where the heck did you hide? Everywhere. I mean, I thought there wasn't a tree out.
2: Remember, I was trained for that, too. So, I I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, that, that, so that, you know, that feeling right when you, when you know you're alone, it's like, boom. If you've never been alone, I'm not talking about just being by yourself. That's, that's completely different. You know exactly what I mean. I just had that the whole, the whole time. But then I was on the move and I was worried about dying and then something else would always, you know how it works, something always flows it's the craziest scenario to be put in yeah but it lends character though when, when we make it out yeah i mean i call it the well well i started the lone survivor foundation but i also have a lone survivor foundation like the, the the base of me and everything is built around the fact that everything around me was taken taken away and when you're alone and it's uh it only takes a split second it takes a snapshot in time to, to get that it's almost like you go straight into it and then while you're out there living it out it's just that's the coming back part yeah. and it, you, know I mean? you know what I mean so um, yeah it's uh, thanks, thanks for everything you did it's an honor to talk to you
3: well I just did what I had to do that's what we all do yeah
2: so thank you for it